Hello, this is Pastor John Willingham of Doralstown Presbyterian Church. As our podcast audience continues to grow, I want to thank our loyal listeners and welcome those who may have just recently found us. We know that life can quickly become busy, so this podcast offers an on-the-go opportunity to hear a Sunday sermon along with the scripture lesson read by that day's lay leader or preacher. We also encourage you to visit our website at dtownpc.org to learn more about our church and all of our diverse ministries. Thank you for tuning in. Our scripture today is from Matthew 6, 7 to 15. It can be found printed in your pew Bible, the New Testament, page 5. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father in heaven, may your name be revered as holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to this time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The word of the Lord. It's an honor for me to introduce to you our guest preacher today, the Reverend Dr. John Mulder. John is an honorably retired Presbyterian minister, having been ordained 53 years ago. And the majority of his career occurred in academic settings. Uh, I knew of John long before I met him as John taught at Princeton Theological Seminary and left just a couple years before I arrived and still heard from seniors in in the school about how much they appreciated him as a teacher and learned then of how he had left Princeton at a young age, early 30s, for he had been called to be the president of Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and he served there for 22 years. My first pastorate was in Mount Sterling, Kentucky, about an hour east of Louisville. And while I'm not sure John and I ever crossed paths then, I was on campus several times over the years working with other students who were preparing for the ministry. It was during those same years that I became aware of John as really one of the leaders in our denomination. Presbyterian Church USA was formed in 1983, a reunion of two branches of Presbyterianism. And in the years that followed, there are all kinds of decisions made about this new denomination, including where the denominational headquarters would be. Previously, they had been in New York City and in Atlanta. And there was a General Assembly meeting where the recommendation coming to that group was to put our headquarters in Kansas City as the middle of the country, as a mark of this new denomination. And John, along with the mayor of Louisville, was very active at that General Assembly in presenting a very different proposal, one that ultimately won the day, namely that the headquarters would be in Louisville, Kentucky, which is where it is to this day. 
John and his wife, Mary. Mary is an English college professor who taught at the Jefferson Community and Technical College in Louisville. They moved to this area a little over two years ago because their son and daughter-in-law and grandchildren live in Warrington. The first I knew that they had moved here was when we announced that we were creating a Stepping Stones class, our new member class. And in that time, we were still under the limits of the pandemic. And so the class was entirely be online. And we got an email from Mary where she had filled out a form saying she was interested in joining our church. They had been worshiping with us online for months, and I had no idea. And as part of that, she said that her husband, John, was a retired Presbyterian minister. And I thought, Mulder. How many John Mulders can there be in our denomination? John is the author of at least 25 books. His specialty is in church history, the intersection of American culture and religion. He also, as part of his work for the denomination, chaired the committee that created the denominational seal that you see here on pyramids, as well as on our hymnal and the Pew Bible, uh, an enduring gift that John says actually was one of the favorite things he ever did as part of his service to the denomination. Uh, it is a joy for me, on your behalf, to welcome John to our pulpit as a colleague, as a fellow Bucks County resident, and as my friend. Welcome, John. Thank you, John, for that very generous introduction. <clears throat> I'm especially glad that my wife Mary could be here to hear it. <laughs> this is a joy for me to be a part of this service and to be a part of this beautiful sanctuary, and I am grateful for the opportunity to share with you in worship. Let's begin this morning with a thought experiment. Let's imagine that there's a focus group on faith, a group of representatives of the various Christian churches in the United States today. They're gathered in a circle and they are um, convened by a moderator who poses a question to them what is the distinctive feature of your church? The Presbyterian goes first because we Presbyterians tend to go first when it comes to speaking about practically everything. And the Presbyterian says, why, it's the sovereignty of God. And the Catholic says, it's the sacraments, particularly the Eucharist and baptism. And the Baptist says, yes, it's baptism, all right, but only for adults. And the Methodist says, it's sanctification, growth in righteousness. And the fundamentalist says, 
It's the belief in the Bible as the inerrant word of God. And the Lutheran says it's justification by faith. The Pentecostal says it's the power of the Holy Spirit, especially the gift of speaking in tongues and healing. And the Episcopalian says it's our liturgy, the Book of Common Prayer. And the Evangelical says it's the experience of being born again, a personal, life-changing experience of Jesus Christ. Now that's a sample of the diversity of Christianity in America today. On the one hand, it's exciting and even inspiring because it reveals the richness and complexity of Christianity in our nation. It's safe to say that no one of these churches has a complete lock on the truth. Each one has a grasp of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. On the other hand, it's a little bit depressing. A religion that claims to believe in one Lord and one faith it looks more like the fragments of a jigsaw puzzle than a portrayal of Jesus Christ. Now consider an insight from Houston Smith. For most of the 20th century, Houston Smith was considered the historian of world religions. Long before interreligious dialogue became popular, Houston Smith introduced us to the beliefs of billions of people. His most popular book is The World's Religions, and it has sold more than two million copies. I say that with a little bit of jealousy. <laughs> In one of his writings, Houston Smith declares that there are three great traditions that came from the patriarch Abraham, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Each left different legacies of what it had taught. Judaism, he says, taught us the importance of family. Islam taught us the importance of prayer and Christianity taught us the importance of forgiveness. Now, when I ran across that, I was stunned. I've spent most of my adult life uh, studying the history of Christianity, and I can cite you many examples of intolerance and injustice of Christians toward one another and toward people of other faiths. I could point you to our contemporary political life, which hardly seems to be a model of understanding and forgiveness toward one another. Forgiveness hardly seems to be the mark of Christianity in our world today. And yet, here's Houston Smith. He says, if you take the long view and the broad perspective, it's Christianity, it's forgiveness that marks the real character of Christianity. It's the heart of Christianity.
Now, I believe he's right. Scholars tell us that fully two-thirds of Jesus' teachings deal with the theme of forgiveness. The Sermon on the Mount may give us a summary of what we are to do to follow Jesus, but Jesus spent most of his time and energy talking about a God who forgives and asks us to forgive one another. Indeed, one of the last things he ever said was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Lord's Prayer is the classic example of Christ's teaching. The words, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, come at the very center of the prayer. They're preceded by an acknowledgement of God's power and holiness, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the plea for forgiveness lies at the heart of the other intercessions for daily prayer or daily bread and deliverance from temptation and evil. In other words, in the Lord's Prayer, forgiveness isn't the first word or the last word It's the main word lying at the heart of the prayer. Now, in case anyone misses the point, Jesus follows up his model prayer with these words. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive you. Over the past several years, the subject of forgiveness has become a major issue in my life. Before that, I devoted most of my energy to studying how people understood Christianity. Then, because I grew older and more aware of my own frailty and weakness, the main point of Christianity, forgiveness, became a personal question, not an academic one. How, I asked, can God forgive me? How can others forgive me? Now, I can't claim to have definitive answers, but I have two crucial insights to offer this morning. First, and most obviously, being forgiven by God and forgiving others are interrelated. These aren't two separate experiences. They're interlocked like fingers uh, in two hands. We can't know God's forgiveness without knowing the forgiveness of others. But the reverse is also true. We can't forgive others without knowing God's forgiveness of us. That is more difficult than it might first appear. Perhaps it's because we don't think we've really done all that much that's wrong. Some of my minister friends tell me that actually the most controversial part of the service of God, the worship service of God, is the confession of sin. And I can believe that. As I look out over this wonderful congregation, you don't look particularly sinful. (laughs) 
Sure, we mess up, but are we messed up? Is there something fundamentally flawed in us that needs forgiveness? It's hard to admit our shortcomings and defects. Why? It's partly because we think we're in control. We assume that we can pretty much uh, handle what life throws at us. We believe that in the last analysis, we know how to live our lives, and for the most part, we do that very well. Thank you very much. When others frustrate us, or anger us, we become resentful. We live with a desire for control we don't acknowledge, or an anger and a resentment we barely suppress. This vicious cycle shuts us down and closes us up so that we live in crates. We can't get out and nobody can get in. It kills us sometimes physically, but always spiritually. There's an old Native American saying that you've perhaps heard, that the person who is angry digs two graves, one for the person he's angry with and the other for himself. The only way out of the crate is to admit that we can't control ourselves and acknowledge we need God's presence in our lives to forgive what we have done and to free us for what God wants us and created us to be. We can't escape from the crate without God breaking through and lifting us up. And once we're out of the crate, we can open the crate and open it, the crate for others. You see, the forgiveness we find, we cannot keep. We have to give it away. The second insight is this. The hardest part about forgiveness is not giving it to others, but receiving it for ourselves. Pope John XXIII, who did so much to renew the Catholic Church, once confided to his diary, the greatest challenge of the spiritual life is not to love, but to receive love. Listen to that again. The greatest challenge of the spiritual life is not to give love, but to receive love. My spiritual advisor, a wise and insightful Catholic priest, gave me that quotation while he guided me toward a better understanding of what forgiveness was all about. My problem, he saw quite correctly, was that I found it difficult to believe that God's forgiveness was for me. I was so caught up with earning forgiveness through repentance and, and shame and guilt that I could not see the pardon that God was offering to me. I couldn't quite understand that, quite, that before I could say I was sorry, God was saying I was forgiven. 
When we are forgiven by God, we're given a chance to stop this endless game of trying to do better, of failing and apologizing and going on in the same way. We recognize that we cannot break out of the self-destructive patterns that erode our relationship with others. And because of God's embracing unconditional love, God forgives us so that we can forgive others, and that includes ourselves. As Pope Francis has said, forgiveness is not a decree. It's a caress. Forgiveness, the heart of Christianity. Two points. One, we are forgiven and therefore free. Two, we are forgiven and therefore free to forgive others, including ourselves. Think of how your life would be different if you accepted that. Think of how your relationship with God would, and others would be transformed if you received that. Think of how people would see the church if we showed that to the world. It's a strategy for mission that beats anything I've ever run across. It's Christ's plan for the world. Here's a story from American history and from Philadelphia to illustrate this affirmation about the Christian faith. Perhaps you have heard it. In 1787, more than 230 years ago, a group of anxious and frightened men gathered in Philadelphia. The American Revolution was over, but the tension and hatred uh, of the war you know, went on and on. These men came with their own agendas of how to build a, a more perfect union, and the result was a set of compromises we now know as the Constitution of the United States of America. That document, with remarkably few uh, amendments, became the foundation of our government, and the writing of the Constitution itself became the miracle of Philadelphia. Toward the end of the grueling negotiations, the aged Benjamin Franklin came down the steps of what is now called Constitution Hall. As he carefully made his way down the steps, someone called to him and said, Dr. Franklin, Dr. Franklin, what kind of government do we have? And Franklin replied in a weary voice, a republic, if you can keep it. Now imagine having lunch with a friend this week. You haven't seen this person in decades. You mentioned that you're a member of Doylestown Presbyterian Church, and the person asks, what kind of church do you have? Or maybe, just maybe, the question is more pointed. What kind of Christian are you? 
Thank you again for joining us today. Once again, I invite you to check out dtownpc.org for information about our worship and programming for all ages.